Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Siwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. I'm trying to enjoy the summer the best I can by avoiding groups of people. I've also been doing a lot of reading these past few weeks, which has been really nice. I also spoke with Terane last week, a previous guest on the show, who is thinking of starting her own podcast with a few friends, which I'm looking forward to listening to. Shout out to Terane. Check out my chat with Terane on episode 8, which seems so long ago. Speaking of long ago... I have been thinking a lot about my own process and getting my episodes out since the beginning. When I started recording two years ago, I was in Pittsburgh for the summer and about to leave for Germany. I decided to record as much as I could before my flight to Berlin, giving me time to see what my habits were in the process of interviewing others and also finding my own voice. I figured if I could get around 26 interviews, I would have a year of material for a bi-weekly podcast. I ended up with 28 episodes and released my very first episode on September of 2018. Of course, this meant I had a huge backlog of material that was not always current, which I slowly worked through, with some episodes continually getting pushed back as I proceeded interviewing new people while in Europe. Since my classes have ended for the summer, I had the time to go deeper into my archives and listen to older interviews, one of which I am releasing this week. So for today, I am interviewing Celeste C. Smith, a co-founder and current board member of One Hood, a collective of artists and activists who utilize art as a means of raising awareness around issues affecting oppressed people in the region and around the world. Celeste is also the current program officer for arts and culture at the Pittsburgh Foundation, a position she just started when I interviewed her. Celeste is a graduate of Chatham University and has served on the Transformative Arts Process Advisory Board at the Heinz Endowment, the Pittsburgh Symphony Community Advisory Council, and the Greater Pittsburgh Arts Council Equity in Arts Funding Research Committee. I visited Celeste in her office in downtown Pittsburgh, which is located in a literal glass castle designed by Philip Johnson, who is most famous for his glass house in New Canaan, Connecticut. Celeste and I chatted about her many projects at the intersection of art and activism, self-care, building support for the youth, and knowing your self-worth. I regret it has taken this long, but after listening through... I felt Celeste's words still resonate strongly, if not more, today. I will have another older episode next time as well. Thank you, Celeste, for your patience, and I hope everyone enjoys this. How's your day going? It is going well. I'm in the office today, and a lot of times I'm out in the field. So being in the office, actually, I thought I would hate it, but sometimes I love it because it's um, a lot less hectic. So... I'm catching up on stuff I had to catch up on and emails and some um, telephone calls and stuff like that. So actually, it's very chill. (laughs) Yeah. What do you know? What what were some of the things that you might do in the field? Um, Just interviews with, um, uh, not interviews, I'm saying interviews because I'm doing an interview, conversations (laughs) 
with artists I and mean, arts organization um, administrators throughout the field and, you know, talking about different ideas, new ideas. Because I'm new to this uh, job, sometimes they're just introductions, mm-hmm. particularly people who I've never met before, people that I know, I'm getting a chance to chop it up with them. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we start off with, um, I guess, where you grew up and how you sort of meandered your way into Pittsburgh? Um, well, I grew up in Chicago on the south side, uh, known as the Wild Hunnets, uh, 115th in state to be exact. Um, I grew up there, lived there I'm on the south side for most of my childhood. I ended up moving to the north side when I got a little bit uh, older. Went to high school in High Park. I'm a Kenwood Bronco. And then I met my husband back in the days when people had to sign up for long-distance services. He moved to uh, Chicago just for that time period, one year. And I used to work at immigration back then. And I had a lot of fluidity, flexibility, and support in that position that I worked. So I used to go work out during the day, go to school during the day. And so I was back and forth. But anyway, I met him outside there. Not going all in depth, fast forward, we fall in love. We moved to Pittsburgh because the cost of living was better here. He had a job here that was already, you know, he was already working. And working at the government, you can just transfer. So we decided to, you know, live in Pittsburgh and to actually, I would have moved to hell if he had been like, can you move to hell? Yes, we can move to hell because I was so in love. So we ended up in Pittsburgh um, and that's how I got here. And you have been here ever since and actually consider Pittsburgh home too. Now. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a beautiful city. Mm-hmm. One that I didn't expect at all. Didn't know anything about it. No, I didn't know much about it either. Yeah, yeah. it's just one of those Midwest cities. And so I was working at the immigration office. You know, I be, because I had already kind of grown in consciousness, um, it's hard to work in an atmosphere where ethically, you're, you're just ethically in conflict all day. And then some assignments, you know, that I would be asked to do, that's just ethically, I was in conflicts. So I wouldn't do them. So as you can imagine, if you work somewhere and you're telling people, oh, I'm not going to do that shit, you know, people feel a certain kind of way. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it was difficult. I, but I stayed in it. Like, I think a lot of people stay in jobs because of benefits. And mm. so the, the type of health insurance and life insurance and uh, retirement benefits that came with it kept me for a while. Mm. Um, then one day I had read an article that Oprah did with Michelle Obama and Oprah's book. I can't remember the book. And I call it like my Michelle Obama moment. And um, (laughs) I walked from my house, which is in East Liberty, to the immigration office at that time, which on the south side. Okay. And it started raining. That's a long walk. It is a long walk. But I was like trying to get fit for something. I don't know what my thoughts were. but (laughs) (laughs) I did walk. And I did a few times. Yeah. But anyway, when I got to work, I called my husband. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. And walking at 5 a.m. in the dark and it starts raining and just put in context like how I want to live my life. And mm-hmm. it was not in service to something that I don't support. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, quit. <laughs> so I did. And, you know, kind of at that when I made that decision, I'm like, okay, well, we're going to go hard, you know, with my support of your career and what you're trying to do with your music. Um, go and hard so or go was, home. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what we did. Um, the way it was so clear to me. And I think a lot of times with with artists and with people who have ideas or people that know they're not born to do what they're doing, we all know. Yeah, I think, though, it's the fear of um, leaving to jump off into the unknown that stops a lot of us. Mm-hmm. But when it began, began to conflict with me so morally, so ethically, that it made it difficult. Even though I, did, I wasn't in a decision-making capacity there, I just felt like, 
supporting it. And it just yeah. was whack. Yeah. <laughs> I had to go. And so I think sometimes we all get in those spaces where we know I can't do this anymore. And right. that was my time in that space. Right. And so immediately after you decided that you'd become part of One Hood, or is that when One Hood started? Or? Mm-hmm. One Hood actually starts before I'm part of it in 2006 when you know a group of brothers uh, came together to protest violence in our community and also against our community. Mm-hmm. There was a rash of shootings in Homewood um, and a bunch of different people from different ideologies, backgrounds, just came together and you know decided to go into the community, walking in the community and showing a force of power that was buttressed by love. Yeah, There was an incident... I want to say in 2007 when one who really comes to prominence and it's when the police pulled a gun on Pamela Lawton and her seven-year-old daughter Jocelyn at a traffic stop and Pamela is screaming Jesus and calling on Jesus and you know for help and her daughter starts screaming and mm-hmm. whatever the police officer's name I can't remember at this time but pointed a gun in the face of her child wow. so the brothers in Ron Hood rallied around Miss Lawton and her family and, you know, if it's a court date, they were there. If it's a hearing, they were there while simultaneously being present in the community. When I was CEO of One Hood, I, I call more of a proactive uh, iteration of One Hood. Um, a lot of times in the beginning, it was very reactive. And I believe being reactive is still important. And that's why One Hood still functions in a reactive manner as well. But the proactive part comes around utilizing the vo- first voices in arts and activism in that intersection to address social justice issues. You kind of utilizing the blueprint we stumbled on with Jasiri's career. He was doing a YouTube show called This Week with Jasiri X. And when he would do This Week with Jasiri X, and this is when I talk about I quit to work with him, I would watch him work full-time job. He was a minister at the mosque, and he would work on his his music full time. Wow. So there would be times where I wouldn't, he would stay up, I kid you not, three days straight creating because he had to write it and he's finding the music and then he's self-taught video editor. Mm -hmm. So anybody that's done any type of editing, whether it's written editing, visual or audio editing, you know, it's tedious. You know, if you folks, I know you got to go back and fix it. Like it's all these things, like it's so hard. And I'm like, how can I help him? You know? And so, one of the ways that I could help was to, you know, begin to write these grants to provide some financial stability to the work that he was doing. So eventually he could also step away from his job right. because the phone call I made to him in 2008, he made to me in 2010 and said the same thing. And he was like, I can't do this. No, OK. And so he quit. Mm. And um, it was hard, though. You know, I don't recommend the way we did it necessarily to everyone. <laughs> I think we might have had twenty five dollars in the bank. Like it was, it was rough for yeah. a minute. But it's so priceless. You cannot put a price tag on freedom. And to be able to move, build, and do what you feel is your God given talent and gift and really mission to if to the world is what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And you cannot quantify that. That's like no. You know what I mean? So. That's how I ended up helping him, just kind of like when we saw opportunities. And One Hood Media's biggest opportunity comes with a report that the Heinz Endowments did in conjunction with Pew that analyzed how black men particularly show up in media. And so I believe 86% of the time that you see a black man or boy in media, it's as a criminal. And it goes up slightly more, maybe to 90% if you put an athlete in there. So mm-hmm. when you talk about this kind of single view of a whole demographic of people. Yeah. It left a way for One Hood to address something proactively and that was in imagery. So One Hood starts as One Hood Media Academy 
where we talk about how images and tropes impact not only the people who are you know, uh, portrayed in these tropes and images, but also the people who consume these images. Mm-hmm. And we started teaching kids le- media literacy back, and I would say it was 2010 when we did that. Just started teaching me, uh, media literacy and trying to improve self-image by pointing out the deliberateness in these tropes. And that's, you know, it's for every ethnicity, there are tropes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so kind of like dismantling those tropes and breaking them down. And then the other part of it that we did was allow, not allow, but provide the tools for the um, young people in the program to take it upon themselves to counter these images and to build their right. own media imagery, songs, and, and so forth. So we still do One Hood Media Academy to this day, still battling these tropes and, and prejudices and biases through our own music, through our own art, and through our own activism. Yeah. And One Hood is like a, is a multidisciplinary sort of group, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just academy. You also help people, help musicians. Help. It's, it's really, because um, hip-hop is a culture. Right. And so anything with a culture, you can, it's basically everything fits. And so that's what the basis of One Hood is addressing things through the hip-hop culture. And so um, really it's a fit for anything. So there are, there are performing artists, there are musicians, there are visual artists, there are like I'm, I'm part of One Hood. And I'm a program officer. It's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's people who are dedicated to seeing the world change and utilizing not only our platforms but also our gifts and talents to affect change. Not only in our own lives where it also starts, but also systemic changes that need to be made, institutional changes that need to, need to be made. Mm-hmm. And if we don't evoke dialogue, protest, and analyzation in these fields. It's going to keep going and it's going to perpetuate more destruction in right. society. Right, right. Did you do it? I know the One Hood's in, um, on Melwood. Did you do anything with the Pittsburgh filmmakers? Uh, was this sort of separate? Not really, to be honest. We had a conversations with Pittsburgh filmmakers when in the interim between when Charlie left and when Jermaine came mm-hmm. on. And Pete Mendez was not really trying to like connect in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, he more so was focused as he, you know, I guess now in hindsight should have been on the, you know, kind of the financial stability of the organization. But I guess it was a missed opportunity in my opinion, when you don't focus on the lack of diversity in an organization and mm-hmm. also the relevancy of an organization to people of color who represent, you know, a lot of people who are on the forefront of film and media. And mm-hmm. we're at this point in time where, you know, you think about, you know, black art, not just in Pittsburgh, but in the in the world space, like, it's just a different day. And so we didn't work deliberately. I think there were conversations um, on approaching it at Jermaine, when Jermaine was there. Um, we just never got to it. But I know, I went to high school with Jermaine. Like yeah. we, I've known Jermaine for a long time. Yeah. And so I have, I think that had he stayed in that position, that might be something. And I'm sure... Um, with Jasiri leading now as the CEO, if there's room and space and a, and a collaboration makes sense, right? Um, there will be some intersections. But honestly, you know, it's a it, we we kind of like do our thing. Yeah. So yeah. If we put it out there. You don't want to collaborate? It's all good. We just gonna keep doing our thing. Yeah. <laughs> I only ask because of what film, you, yes. of the film and, and the, the media location. location, as you're talking about disassembling imagery and uh, symbols and what they mean and how to read them. Yeah, well, but, the, you know what, too, like the thing about us is although we we have equipment, I think it's like it, it being accessible. Mm. So like every kid ain't got a Canon 7D, right? Every kid don't have a podcast set up, right? So how do you make it so that you can still 
talk about who you are first person in a world that really don't care. Mm-hmm. Right? You gotta we gotta make them care. So one thing most kids got, if you ain't got a laptop, you got a cell phone. Mm-hmm. So you can film your own movie with your cell phone. You can record your own music with your cell phone. Now the quality might mm, yeah, right? But it's getting close. It's, it's getting, it's getting close. really close. Yeah. And you know, I always tell my students like it doesn't really matter what you shoot in, you know, unless you're shooting for like an IMAX theater. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, what people are watching, which is on your computer or even projected, it looks pretty good. It looks good. And and let me tell you, like, real talk, even if it don't look that great, it's the story. It's the feeling. Right? Yeah. It's the story. You know, we care about the the quality, yes. But it's the story. Like, you think about, like, something uh, like Blair Witch. (laughs) Yeah. I refuse to watch that. But you've seen, like, image from it. Yeah. It's literally, like, some white girl running in the woods, right? (laughs) And so it's like, but look, all the money they made off it, right? And so it's like- I think it made a lot of money. It made a lot of money. People want, it was interesting. The concept was interesting, like, blah, blah, blah. So kids got, everybody, we have cell phones and we we share media literally 24-7. Yeah. And imagery 24-7. And we evoke conversation for free via, via social media outlets, right? And so that's why, to me, yeah, it cool. It would be cool to collaborate. But really, no, we as a people don't really need that platform to do the work that we're doing. Right. Because it's really about for and in the community that we serve and are a part of. Right. And if they're not being accessible. Then stay inaccessible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right, right. Mm-hmm. I, I was just looking at your all the things you've done. You've also w- were part of the Nefertiti Alliance. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? And when did that start? You know, the Nefertiti Alliance started because we were invited to a table with other small arts organizations to discuss with funders just kind of some of the things we're dealing with. And one of my partners in the Nefertiti Alliance is Aaron Perry, who's the executive director of Legacy Arts mm-hmm. and also a super dope artist in her own right and mother and just amazing woman and just across the board. Aaron was in the meeting with me and we're discussing things. And Aaron says, hey, guys, we're at the Heinz and Diamonds. We're working with Justin on this and like other people that were in small arts organizations. There were maybe seven people there. Yeah. Two organizations of color, myself and Legacy. And Aaron's like, hey, in this meeting with funders talking about art, don't you think we should have some art there? <laughs> and it seemed like such a no-brainer. Yes, you should. And the other non-people of color, small arts organizations, like, no, we don't want to have artists present and perform. We want to utilize this time to get across what we need to get across to the funders mm-hmm. and kind of shot the idea down. Mm-hmm. And um, Erin, she's a force, but I, sometimes I amplify her voice, for you know, and vice versa. And so I amplify her voice in that meeting. And I'm like texting her, like, we finna do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and Tiffany, who's now at the Opportunity Fund, I was like, yeah, we got to do this. It's such a great idea. And so we started organizing independently of it, the conversations we were having with Heinz and the other artists there to see how we can incorporate art into the conversation. But because of the way that Aaron's voice was damn near erased in that conversation, we felt like, yo, how dare you think that your arts organization should have more decision making Mm. than 
this woman who's speaking up in behalf of the demographic she represents. Mm-hmm. And um, in our time organizing to have art present at that meeting, which it was, and anytime you insert art into anything, it just makes it better. Because you don't have to try to explain so hard because art sets the mood and gets a visual or physical representation whether it's dance, if it's oral, like whatever it is, you're able to feel it on a whole nother level right. when it's present. And we got that win. And it also changed how funders um, moved in meetings with art. And a lot of artists got gigs with foundations Wow, based on that, uh, I believe, based on that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it was the collaborating and organizing and safe space that was created in our organizing that we began to build. So it was myself, Aaron Perry, um, Stacy uh, Pearl from Pearl yeah. Arts, and Kilolo Luckett at the time. Yeah, so we just all got together. And we just kept meeting. And we formed, we put, was like, well, we should put a name on this. And that became, and so we were, ve- we were very vested in the cultural capital of Black women in the arts and also self-care. Because what we realized as arts administrators, as executive directors, as leaders and founders and all that kind of stuff, is that arts organizations, particularly of color, are always undercapitalized. Always, you know, you work in 24-7. You're at home, you should be, you know, having sex and you're sitting up here writing reports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, so we're like always working. And so what we did decided to do is um, raise awareness around it. And we received a grant from an Advancing Black Arts events in the field at that time for $25,000 that we were able to take a retreat. We were able to study and, and, and build intergenerationally with, I can't remember the number, but it was like hundreds of you know Black women in the arts here in Pittsburgh. Wow. And also we took our funding and gave you know intergenerationally people who wanted to do events that revolved around the cultural capital of Black women in the arts or self, and or self-care. And did a series of events surrounding that. Mm. So we still meet and, and come together. With my job here, me trying to be in student mode, I'm not... Um, student mode, you said? I'm in student mode, okay. yes. <laughs> seriously learning. Um, I'm oh. not as actively involved in the organization as I mm. was. Kilolo stepped out of the organization probably within the first couple of months because of, again, you know, a lot of... If you're talking about self-care, you have to practice it first and foremost, mm-hmm. right? But we're still working and we're still thinking around it. But I do think we made a huge impact in the time that we were doing it actively. Yeah. And again, even for the women involved, highlighting self-care in our own lives made us better administrators, made us stronger administrators, and made us able to articulate the need, the desire, and importance of self-care and the cultural capital of Black women in arts, because so many of us have shifted the landscape, provided things that people still and try to implement, mm-hmm. not getting paid, because women still get paid like much less than other our counterparts and male counterparts in the arts, Black women even less. So just, you know, raising awareness around those topics alone has been quite a ride. Yeah. And then also specifically within institutions, fundings, grants, like those even more just because of the structure that that is required to go through the ranks, such as, you know, unpaid internships, mm-hmm. oftentimes in LA, New York, or Chicago. So unless you live there and have a place to stay and have someone to support you for these unpaid internships in order to even be hired, it just amplifies those things. Yeah, well, and then I don't like personally believe in unpaid internships. Like one of the things that I really fought for in One Hood and still fight for now is paying artists. I feel like 
whether they're a child or they're a 90-year-old artist working, particularly the people that work in the intersection of arts and activism, because we should all be fighting for a better world. People want you to fight for this better world and take all the risk for free. Mm-hmm. Even uh, whether representing my husband or representing people in one hood, I would have to tell people all the time, like, yo, like, you can pay to email me. Like, nah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you're going to pay people. And again, I feel like that doing that built pride and ownership from of young people from an age of, as small as 13 to people that are still in uh, what is described as adolescence. It's like late 20s now. But <laughs> honestly, like the, all of the <laughs> artists affiliated with One Hood know, like, mm-hmm. nah, you don't do stuff and get paid. Mm-hmm. And I like I'll say a hundred times, I said it before, I can get exposure walking down the street naked all day long. And mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? But no, you gonna pay me. Now, not to say we don't do stuff for free. If it's a grassroots organization that we really believe in what work they're doing and their mission and vision aligns with that of One Hood, One Hood will still do it a lot of times, you know what I mean? Just to kind of support. But it's a lot of institutions that got a lot of money mm-hmm. that want you to do stuff for free. It's the people with the account, I pick your brain for a second mentality. Right. That again, part of our process is no, you can't, but this is my consulting fee. Yeah. And yeah. teaching that to people who never thought that they could say that. Artists demanding pay when we have a pay to play mentality here in Pittsburgh where people be like, I want you to sell these tickets and, you know, to be able, that's, that's work. Yeah. What's the, you know, what's the uh, promoter's job, right? And so, you know, like you said, from interns to artists to activists, if you are ever asking people to use their intellectual capacity, their intellectual property, any of it, yeah. you didn't pay them. Yeah, knowing the, knowing your worth. Right. And um, there's a sister, her name is Orlana, Orlana Darkins, and she works with the Shine Awards, and she's over at Mount Era, and she does a show on, on Wemo. Um, but when I first started managing Jaseri, I had a conversation with her because I didn't know what the hell to ask. To for, ask, like? For, for payment. Oh, uh, okay. And um, I just knew it had to be more. <laughs> so I talked to her and she really, she didn't give me a number. But what she did tell me, uh-huh. and I tell everybody this, she's like, if you don't know your worth, somebody else is going to give you a worth. And nine times out of ten, it ain't going to be what you truly worth. Mm-hmm. So we have to set like standards for ourselves. And we can tweak it if we ask it for some outlandish shit because you'll know it's outlandish because you're not getting <laughs> any work. Yeah. Right? You, you tweak it as you go along. But yeah. you um, no, you have to set your worth and otherwise somebody else will. And that's the short version of it. And it's true. Yeah. Claiming your space. I think about this a lot in terms of also like social media. How oh, you got to claim your space because if you don't, someone else will. All day. Mm-hmm. So if you were, how long were you working for One Hood before you moved to the Pittsburgh Foundation? I started working as CEO. That's because I've been working for One Hood since its inception, but more so behind the scenes. Uh, I took the reins as CEO in 2013 um, and up until January of this year, mm. um, I was CEO. So about five years as in that official capacity. And how did your role change when you became CEO? You know, I, well, a lot of the change was in claiming my own work and claiming recognition for my own work. Mm. And I think like that part of it changed me. Mm. And when you appreciate yourself and you have a level of confidence and then you begin to establish a track record of what you're capable of, that in turn makes other people appreciate you and mm. your work. 
I have always worked in tandem with my husband, even as CEO. There were a few decisions that I didn't consult with him about. But some stuff I just was like, hey, we're going to do this and this. And <laughs> hey, I'm going to just do that. No, give out money. And my, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, those things are just like authentically who I am. I'm just a philanthropically motivated individual. I don't need a lot. And I always land on my feet by the grace of God. But I think that the, I do think that the organization regained footing, became more of an institution and changed a lot more specific things in terms of how we were we were organizing. Because we still organize on very much what people would call, I guess, traditional activism and systemic and, you know, like racism, like those things. We still are working very hard to do those things. But I think it's a more intimate approach now because if, and I don't utilize the word empower often. One, in a conversation I had with Justin Lang, he was like, empower kind of gives the, the impression that you're giving somebody power. Mm. Right. And I, I do kind of agree with that. So I kind of think of it like igniting the power that's already in people. Mm. And sometimes we just don't know. And so there'll be like, you know, kids that'll be like, Miss Celeste, you really, you know, I wouldn't be where I was without you. And then our kids and we're not in college. Right. And it's like, you know, doing those that intimate one on one work with people because I really care about people. And so I'm not like my it's a, it's a, the way I, I impact change with people is people seeing who the fuck they are. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm like, no, you really are dope. Like, and then like kind of providing a platform so they can see their dopeness and others can see their dopeness. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And um, I think that's like what I'm most proud of is that like, and it's harder for me to mentor in this, this job in the same manner because I have so many meetings that I have. And Let's talk I, about your job. Yeah, it's a lot. You know what I mean? And um, so it's hard to me to mentor to the extent. But I, I haven't changed my cell phone number. I still try to be available when they hit me up. And when I see people who I really admire, like, you know, Nia from Youth uh, Power Collective, she didn't come through one hood, but she, I met her working with, a, I believe, in the TAP process. But to see her grow into the young woman she is and to be able to offer encouragement to her when I see her because I love this girl and I love the work that she's doing. That's the stuff that I I really, really love. And I think that was seen within the work that we did with One Hood. Nobody, even the kids, everybody got paid for work that they do. It's still something that we pride ourselves in. I don't know where that money came from, but we did it. So I know other people can do it. And we paid no one less than $15 an hour, full stop. When we would work with other organizations that would send us interns and would only pay the interns seven twenty five an hour. We would augment their salary to bring them up to fifteen dollars an hour. Wow. Yeah, you know I mean, and so like, if you don't ask kids what do you want to be when you grow up, it's like, what do you want to be now? Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, people who are successful have been working on what they do most all their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, some get aborted from the process because of not having the proper support in their lives. But when you're able to figure out why you're here at the earliest age and start working towards that and not think of your artistic product as a hobby or as side gig, like it's the possibilities are endless. And so you start giving kids money and supporting them in a way where they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are valuable their work is valuable. Their time is valuable. Their whatever is valuable. Mm-hmm. Just the existence is valuable. Yeah. And no, you're not a trope. You're a dope-ass artist or dope-ass painter or dope-ass woman or dope-ass man, like whoever. Mm-hmm. Like, But just providing that and really meaning it, not 
not some after that type shit. Like, no, I mean this. And the board, our uh, advisory boards in one hood, the board of directors, all young people are, not all young people, but consist of young people who hold the same amount of power and voice in decision-making as the other people that are on our boards and our advisory boards and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Most of the young people that still work for One Hood were once part of the media academy and they just come right into the ranks and, you know, work, work there now. And then also the other part is like providing, I, I call it mini grants, and I didn't really think of it as re-granting when I was doing it, but I wrote my grants to foundations with a little bit of fluidity in them. Mm-hmm. to be able to support other artists in their endeavors as long as they align with the mission, vision, and value of One Hood. And so you have like Sunfest that Jordan um, Howard, who's a member of One Hood, um, put together uh, with Luke, who was also a member of One Hood, and, um, and JB, another friend of his, not a member of One Hood necessarily, but an artist in the, the region. And they did Sunfest, and so we support Sunfest monetarily, and people go do their thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. so... I think like those are ways that we've shown up and things that I'm most proud of in my time and they continue. With Jasiri coming back, there is a greater focus on the creativity part. I worked on establishing us and making us an institution. I worked on partnerships and things of that nature and I worked on supporting artists. Creating the foundation. He's, mm-hmm, he's coming in with this is the Artivist Academy and working directly in that intersection of arts and activism. And Art, what did you call it? Artifi- Artivism. Artivism. And, and that's not what I call it. I don't know where that came from. It's not my word, but it's it, it's fitting mm-hmm. in that intersection. So you see like artists like, you know, for instance, Black Rap, who has been a member of One Hood for years. And I think probably even maybe shared the word artivism with me. You know, like a, you see her profile growing, her platform growing. She's in Philly and Harrisburg doing stuff. She's in Atlanta doing stuff. Like you see this growth coming out of it. Um, you have, you know, an artist like Brittany Chantel who comes out of a military experience and protest of the only thing she's lived and seen, but, you know, the artistic approach to, to protest. And there's just so many of them and they're visual artists now. And so I think before I came, before I left too, we worked very hard on making sure that one hood is not just in our household. So, Talia um, and Ty and Farouk are working now with Shasiri to kind of do the administrative piece of One Hood and looking at the intersections of academia and what we do and kind of like we've always looked at it, but really formalizing mm. it. And the other piece is like you all stuff can't fall on one person. Um, when I went One Hood doing the local piece of it, it was very hard on me physically, and mentally, and emotionally. And I spent at least one week out of every year that I was a CEO until the last year when I got help. I was in a hospital, you know, for stress-related stuff. And, like, it would manifest physically, mm. right? And so I was like, <laughs> you know, well, that's mental was, and physical health are yeah, intertwined. Yeah, and so whenever there's some physical shit going on, you know it's some spiritual and mental stuff that's connected. Mm-hmm. And mine was, you know, like, how the hell do you have this? And they don't even know, like, type of stuff, right? And so, but when I, you know, hired Ty and Talia specifically, and um, just really came home, to do more because he had gotten the Nathan Cummings fellowship that required for him to do work more on the ground. Physically, my health began to improve because I didn't have the entire burden on myself. Right. So I think that that's important, not only just for one hood's longevity, because we have always had artists 
and they share the burden in that way because I'm not out there as an artist, right? And so we're still all building something collectively, but the administrative part was really, truly a lot on me. Mm. And so I think for any organizations that work as collectives, I would think it's, it behooves us to study that and explore it because I think that the hierarchical pr- approach is really counterproductive and it really needs to be lateral because if we're truly being one hood and we're truly trying to affect change, we have to have a lot of different voices in there, not just one perspective. Right. And I think that that has to come from the top down, for lack of a better term. Right? Yeah. But it really does. It has to be, you know, and it's not because of necessarily that managers like it that way. It's just that a lot of us are ingrained in this culture of Western society of just that person is the boss, you know what I mean? And that person makes the decision. So I, don't, I think we're a long way from it ever being like that in our society where we actually just work. Laterally. A, yeah, laterally. Mm-hmm. And you be in charge of your thing and you be in charge of your thing. And, you know, so can you see if you look at our website, it's director of, director of, director of, because we really do want right. to give like this um, where we are entrusting ourselves letting go and being like, yeah, let's all work and and build these things together. Not holding back the knowledge that we gained from running the organization for over 10 years, right? but still working with people to see their power and celebrate and appreciate everybody's perspectives. Right. And a sort of trust in the people that are working there, right? If you ever interviewed them or talked to them, when time to Leah started, we still, like I said, Farouk, um, as well, you kind of pick how you want to work. Like, I, I may give you things that I need taken care of in terms that come through email, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you can work from home if you want. There's no dress code. There's no, you know, set schedules necessarily, except for when we got to be somewhere, we got to be there. So if we have an event or if we have partnerships that require us, like we do work in Schumann Center. We do work with the Carnegie Library, Gwen's Girls. There's a few partnerships that are going on with One Hood. And it's funny, I'm, I'm talking so much about One Hood because I'm not really involved in the day-to-day anymore. Yeah, I'm just talking about my time while I was there and the things that I see that they're still doing and I you know, appreciate it, particularly having left it. You know, there's a little bit of apprehension, left the day-to-day, I haven't left the organization. Nostalgia. There's a little bit of, yeah, an apprehension, like, oh my God, is everything I built going to be, yeah. you know, combust? Like, and, yeah. it's, and it's not because the people who are there are brilliant and they care about our people. And that's... That's all you really need. (laughs) And so then how did this opportunity at the Pittsburgh Foundation come about? I applied for a job. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, a couple of people sent me the application um, because I applied for this job and also arts and culture at Heinz Endowments. Mm -hmm. And I was one of, there were two positions at Heinz Endowments. One my sister Shonda has and other Mac Housen has over there as well. And there came a point when there were two people left for each job. And so um, Shonda and Mac obviously were chosen. I was one that didn't get it. And I don't know who the fourth person is, but I didn't get the job. So I was like, oh, I guess that means that I'm supposed to keep working with one hood. And like, I really believe like that things happen for a reason. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'll just go hard with this. And I was, I had people helping now. So it really was not as difficult of a lift as it had been because I had help. But right after I found out I didn't get the job in Heinz, Jeannie Perlman, who you know, as my supervisor here, she called um, and it's like, hey, can you come in for an interview? And so I was like, cool. So I came in for the interview mm-hmm. and then I interviewed with the entire program staff. <laughs> How many people was that? You know, it was like, I think it's, it was 10 people there, but I did the wow. same thing with Heinz and there was more people in that meeting. Wow. And I, it was it was so great to interview 
for both of those jobs because I was just like I'm talking to you. That's exactly how I did my interview. I think I cussed twice in yeah. my Heinz interview. Like literally, I just am me wherever I show up. But really to talk about my priorities and to see that many of the priorities I have aligned with the priorities of the foundation. Mm. And, you know, it really after that, they called me and offered me the position. And then I took it. And so I had a little bit, I can't remember when this all transpired. I had a little bit of time to transition out of my role. And I had obligations to one hood that I had to finish up this year. So part of it, I had a fellowship with the Association for Performing, Performing Art Professionals presenters, I forget what the name is, APAP. Okay. <laughs> they changed the name recently. Yeah. Um, that I had to finish up. And so I had to go and present at the APAP convention, which is in January. I had Nefertiti Alliance thing I had to finish up, which was our retreat, and I went to Puerto Rico in February. I had a, a South by Southwest Community Award that I received, which was like super cool. That's in Texas, right? In Austin, yes, Austin, Austin yeah. Texas. And um, I had to do that. And then I went to Another conference. I can't, I'm forgetting the name of it right now. Oh, Policy Link. Again, an obligation I had before that came. But the thing is, I worked in arts and culture for so many years already that all of them um, were work-related. And so it didn't take away from my job here. It enhanced it. APAP, because we have to have national panels where we invite national artists and nationally recognized artists in to review panel, I mean, applications for advancing black arts and also investing in professional artists. And so it it helps that I have this national presence and relationships with people nationally mm -hmm. because when I help to curate panels here, I actually know people I'm asking. Right. <laughs> and it's a privilege because I know that their priorities are in line with the foundation, not only the, the foundation here, the Pittsburgh Foundation, but also the Heinz Endowments because advancing black arts and investing in professional artists are dual programming. And so we have 100% Pittsburgh here and they have just Pittsburgh here. Mm. And a lot of the the values are the same. And so when selecting people for panels, you want to select people that you want a diverse spectrum of people that come in. You want to make sure different races, ethnicities, um, mindsets, disciplines, and even sexual orientation, like that's important and you got to have it in a panel. So, mm -hmm. you know, just trying to make sure that we have like the spectrum represented in each yeah. panel is easier when you actually know people. And so that the knowledge that you get from something like policy link, because even policies impact arts and culture and it and definitely impacts people. And we're seeing it play out in this, this administration we have in Washington, mm -hmm. how, you know, important real policies are in terms of impacting change. Absolutely. You know, you get it. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what, what exactly is your um, day to day job entail at the, as a program officer for arts and culture? You know, I'm still learning what that is. <laughs> um, Obviously, it's getting to know artists and their projects and trying to figure out if their projects align with the mission, vision, values, and goals of the Pittsburgh Foundation. But it's also... Um, what are those? What is that? I, well, it's, you know, really concerned with 100% Pittsburgh, which is courage, voice, and racial equity. Mm. Um, we're thinking about the people who are most impacted by the economic disparity of the region. You're talking about single moms. You're talking about children, you know. Those are like, that's really my guiding principles when I talk to people. So if I am talking to a, a larger institution that, that has not really manifested in their portfolio that these are concerns for them, I'm encouraging them to go back and look and see 
is this really the place, you know, that can best support your work? I'm encouraging them to look to see spaces in which they can engage, you know, different people that don't look like themselves. Right. And it could be in the work that they're producing. It could be in the staff that they're hiring. It can be in their board of directors. But there should be some leaning toward what we as a foundation say is important to us in terms of what we fund and in terms of how people are looking. I also tell people like EEO been a thing for a whole long time. EEO? EEO, like equal employment opportunity. And so there's certain things that you just ain't supposed to discriminate against. It's race, it's age, it's sexual orientation. It's so much, right? So you really should have been doing this anyway before we as a foundation made it a priority, Mm. right? So how are you moving? And so part of that is that accountability and talking to organizations, but also talking to artists and seeing what's hood. Because I'll say like, I'm not, interested in a conversation about who you think I am because you Googled me before I got here. I really want to see how this is authentically showing up in your work. Right. Right. And so I actually have received good feedback and people like grateful to because I'm kind of like just me and I show up how I am and I'm telling you what we're looking for and I'm not playing games. You know what I mean? And so people are like, yeah, it's cool. Like it's refreshing. And so I continue like to move in that space. you, You do you. Yeah, but there also there are other programs, you know, that I'm responsible for that were in place before I got here. So taking a critical eye at them, but also because they are in place, there's only so much room I can do. Um, we're going with them. Um, one is the uh, like capitalization program where we capitalize um, small arts organizations with five other foundations. The other part I I put on my um, mid year review. I put on there that I'm working to make sure that marginalized communities, for lack of a better term, know about the foundation, know about our work. Because so many people don't know about, they like hardcore artists out there don't know none about the grants. There's community organizations that don't know nothing about and don't have access to. Right? right. So part of my job is like being a conduit and connecting people with resources and then stepping out of the way and letting them do their thing. I think the other part is being vocal about because I'm still part of my community. I don't think this is a job. <laughs> like this full stuff is a job. Yeah. Right. And so though I care about it, I'm grateful for it. I'm still a part of my community. I'm not like not caring about shit that's happening outside these literally this castle looking building. Yeah. Like this ivory tower. Right. I'm really it's caring. a scary building. <laughs> I know. It's a it's a, yeah, it's it's a scary building. And most of my meetings are outside of the building, but <laughs> <laughs> you really don't. Real talk, like all of us are in this on every square inch of this world. And so we should can show up wherever we need to be. Mm-hmm. And we need to feel comfortable walking into the scary buildings, right? And because yeah. like it's just because of the atmosphere don't make it true. Yeah. Right. And so I'm still part of the community. I'm still a black woman Muslim navigating life, right? And so part of it is to make sure that whether you a little little boy rapping in your mama basement or you uh, run a large institution that gets probably 75% of the grant money that we have here. But to make this one community truly for those who desire that space, you know, to be in, you know what I mean? So I don't know. That's my everyday is reviewing grant applications, the the, the tangible part of it. Right. When you put in an application, reviewing it to make sure it matches up and aligns, you know, talking to you if I have more questions, investigating that part. Yeah. Um, Talking to artists in general, connecting people. We have staff meetings and things like that where we all talk about every single grant application that comes into the door. And because I'm not a singular 
person and I know things about other departments and vice versa. Other departments know about things that come across my desk. So right. we all talk about them and every application is vetted through the program and staff before it moves any further. Right. Now, sometimes I have to do speaking engagements. Sometimes I interviews, <laughs> yeah. you know, sometimes I have to uh, represent the foundation in spaces, uh, a lot of community convenings and things. I love my job. Like yeah. it's the perfect medium between paper and people. Right. And, and like you were saying before, they give you a lot of flexibility, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a lot of flexibility. because, And it's really great to be paid for your brain. I think a lot of it, too, is being paid for my network, <laughs> yeah. which I didn't really realize how vast it was until like I really started thinking about all of the people that I know. And again, like it's, a, it's an asset to have to put together a panel, and you're looking at people that you don't know and inviting them. Yeah. And a lot of people don't answer a cold call for a panel. Um, it just don't happen. But right. at least if I invite somebody from the network of people that I know and been blessed to build with on intimate level, they'll either say nah and I can't come <laughs> and that's you know, or they'll be like, Yes, I wanna come. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I I don't know. It's like it's really great to me. Um, you know, there's some I haven't had like the knockout, drag out, like fuck the shit type of you know, yeah, situation not yet. yet. Not yet. Um, I'm sure. It, I don't know. I don't want to call it into existence. Hopefully, I never will have that. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a great opportunity, and having like a real ass paycheck is a dope thing, and it helps me. It 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 keeps me like cognizant of the people I'm trying to serve because, like I said, nonprofit leaders are underpaid artists are not paid not even underpaid they just ain't paid right mm-hmm. and so i remember times when particularly when my husband quit we wasn't balling there was a time when we was on food stamps public assistance one of the most humbling times in my life you know what i mean and so i know intimately how it feels to be trying to like really do your art and not have enough to pay you know even buy food for your children right and so um, I'm not cocky, so I went in there and I got my assistance, right? So, but I keep that with me. It's very present with me. And so when I look at an application, I'm not like being like dismissive of any of them. Right. Any of them. Because even the larger institutions employ people. And so, you know, not giving to large institutions impacts the field as well mm-hmm. because they got people who are one paycheck away from being homeless working for them too. Right. One question that came up as you're talking about the equal opportunity process, how, what is that process like when you go into another institution and tell them, critique them about the way that they're doing? I haven't had any pushback yet, but that's something I'm, you know, either people are authentically like, like, you know what, you're right. Or the thing about it too, it's my job to investigate that what you're saying you're going to do, you're actually doing. So that's part of it. And we'll see how it pans out. You know what I mean? Yeah. But right now I'm not getting any pushback because literally it's law. Um, <laughs> the other thing too. But there's that, a lot of things that are law that aren't happening. Right. But then it's, it's our job to hold people accountable. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's like what I'm trying to do. So we'll see because we, you know, we'll see. That's all I can say about <laughs> okay. that. We will see. But I, right now I'm kind of like getting, yeah, you're right. You know what I mean? So, and I don't think anybody is just out here trying to be some just, racist, non-accessible organization. Like, right? No one's purposefully like right. that. It's the system that it's is. It's the system, right? And so that's why we have to attack the system. Yeah. And we have to also talk about it when it's not happening. We can't just let it keep being, you know, we've been like this for you. Nah, 
Let's really talk about this because I really don't think anybody wants things to remain. Well, I can't say that. I think some people do want things to remain, but I would say the vast majority don't. You know what I mean? And so that's me. I'm due diligence and I'm telling you and I'm holding you accountable. And even people who put the names of influencers and smaller arts organizations and artists in their applications, but don't talk to the artists. Hmm. I'm like calling that out because I've seen that there were many files that had my, my, you know, one hood in them that I ain't know nothing about that we were supposed <laughs> to be involved in this that came that I had to look at because the files was on my desk. Right? Yeah. And I'm like, yo. And then I've seen. Like they said, they claimed that they work with you, these yeah, organizations. And would be partnering with. Right. Mm. And it's like bullshit. Right. Yeah. And then I also have um, known to be, you know, as one hood, we had worked in the past with larger institutions that claimed our programming as their own because they were fiscal conduits. And truthfully, yes, technically, you can say that this is your program because you are accepting the money for it. But ethically, you can say we're partnering with mm-hmm. One Hood on their program or any other small boom concepts or Black Unicorn Project or Hiawatha Projects or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're partnering with them. This is their idea. They maintain intellectual control and property and blah, 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 blah. Right. But to Thank a foundation for programming that you didn't come up with, that you didn't do, is bad form. So I'm requesting MOUs and calling a memorandum of understanding between the artist and the larger institution to protect the the artist from what maybe structural systemic, you know, thing that is done. But really just protecting the intellectual property of those artists so that we don't see history repeat itself and people get robbed of what they are really, that's their baby. Don't just tell nobody baby. Right. Yeah. Anything else that I missed? I don't know. What do you think? I think it's good. <laughs> I think we, we talked, we covered a lot of ground. I think so. Yeah. So I'm really proud of you and I'm um, proud of the platform that you're providing. And I'm proud like, that you're like about to go do your thing, continue doing your thing. But thank you for hosting me. Um, thank you, Celeste. Edit all the bad stuff out. And, um, <laughs> I'll make you sound good. Make you sound good, right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziwon Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.